In his song, Nobody Loves Me But My Mother, the great blues guitarist, the king of the blues, the legendary B.B. King sings these words, nobody loves me but my mother and she could be jiving too. We might be tempted to feel that way about God. We might be tempted to think nobody loves me but God and he could be jiving too. Listen, God loves you and he ain't jiving. I know we don't use that word anymore that much. It means he's not lying. He's not being deceptive about his love. He really does love you. And as we'll see in our passage today, we are surrounded by God's love. We are squeezed in by his love. And do you know how God loves He loves with his eyes wide open. He knows the truth about what we've all done. Everything that we have ever done, he knows. And he loves us anyway. God knows the truth about everything we have ever done. Think about that. Is that scary? Yeah. But we don't have to be scared. He knows everything about us and he loves us anyway. And when you start to believe that, you just might want to live for him. You just might want to make your passion in life to live for Jesus, the one who died and was raised. And you might even do something crazy like love your neighbors, even the ones that really irk you, even the people that absolutely drive you crazy. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and what we'll see in our passage today is this truth. Let God love on you, and you'll live for him. Let God love on you, and you will live for him. Now, when I say let God love on you, I don't mean that his loving you is dependent on you in any way, because it's not. God loves you. He loves you because he loves you. God simply loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't want God to love me. It doesn't matter. He loves you anyway. There's nothing you can do about it. What I mean when I say let God love on you is receive his love. Embrace his embrace. Believe the gospel. And when you do receive his love, and when you do embrace his embrace, and when you do believe the gospel, it will cause you to go and live for him. And it will even cause you to do something crazy like love the people in your life that really irk you and really drive you crazy. Listen, if you struggle to love someone, Jesus doesn't want you to d- deny it. Just tell him about it. Ask him to help you love them. Come with all your sin and let Jesus love on you so that you can go and live for him. That's why he saved you. Christian, that's why he saved you, so that you will quit living for your petty little kingdom and begin to live for his kingdom, which is far more glorious than yours and far more glorious than mine. 
If you compare the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom, with our petty little kingdoms, which one is more glorious? Which one is like Netflix binge-worthy? I'm going to say Jesus's is, right? Because you know what? When I live for my kingdom, that means I want the last bagel. I want the last of the cereal. Who ate my chips? That's my kingdom. Nobody wants to binge-watch that. But when you live for Jesus' kingdom, when you watch his kingdom unfold, it's glorious. Far more glorious than our petty little kingdoms. Listen, my petty little kingdom, this is, all right, I'm going off the manuscript here, so watch for heresy. I prayed, Lord, please don't let me go say anything amiss when I go off the, off the manuscript. But, you know, I was, this week I was at the self-checkout line at the grocery store, and there's one on this side and one on this side, and this lady's right on this side, but her cart's kind of out in the middle, and I can just barely get by, and I was so bothered by that. I was like, just scoot your cart over. Who do you think you are? And I'm in the self-checkout line, and it's like the Holy Spirit is tapping me on the shoulder, and he's saying, you need to check yourself out in the self-checkout line. Look at your heart. She's probably not even aware that her cart is scooted out over there. So I had to like kind of scoot up and squeeze by, and she didn't even budge. And I just thought, Ugh, that's living for a petty, puny, tiny little kingdom. Who wants to watch that on Netflix? Nobody. Jesus' kingdom is far more glorious. And that's what we'll see today, that we need to live for his. So 2 Corinthians 5. Okay, there was no heresy in that, I hope. I did all right. 2 Corinthians 5, let's look at verse 13 and hear the word of the Lord. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now remember the context here. The super apostles had invaded the church in Corinth, a group of false teachers who were saying, you need to come back under the Mosaic law, do everything in the Old Old Testament, and, and then you'll be accepted by God. But the super apostles, if you recall, were very self-absorbed, living for their own tiny little kingdoms. They loved to stare in the mirror, and they loved what they saw when they did. They could not swallow Paul's philosophy of ministry. They broke out in hives when the apostle Paul said that ministry was about pointing to Jesus and not to self. It was about living for Jesus and not living for self. So they thought Paul was crazy for not making ministry about him. That's why in verse 13, Paul says, if we're crazy, it's for God. Paul is answering his critics here. And that phrase there, the ESV translates it, for if we are beside ourselves, is the same word that's used in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family thought that he had lost his marbles. 
And so Paul uses that same word here to answer his critics. And he says, if we've lost our marbles, it's all for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's all for you, Corinthians. So Paul is showing us once again, he does not make ministry about him. Ministry for Paul is number one, for God's glory. Number two, for the good of others. It's for God and others. Paul's philosophy of ministry is magnify Jesus, minister to others. And that means that Paul is not in that equation at all. Paul doesn't need to connect. He doesn't need to tie ministry to himself. He says here, it's all for God's glory, and it's ministering the grace of Jesus to you Corinthians. But the super apostles thought Paul was crazy for preaching the free grace of God for sinners. They believed you had to earn your way by obeying the Mosaic law. So they thought that Paul had lost his mind. The super apostles were peddling a righteousness that could be earned. And of course, they thought they had earned it. Their self-righteousness made them critical of Paul. Listen, Grace, self-righteousness will make your heart critical and self-righteous will make righteousness will make your attitude cynical that's what self-righteousness does it clouds our thinking it colors our hearts it our perceptions and our relationships are changed self-righteousness will make your heart critical of other people if you start to believe your own hype If you start to believe your own propaganda, then it will make you critical of other people and your own heart will become toxic and you'll look down on others while elevating yourself. And so what self-righteousness does is it transforms you into a critic and self-righteousness will make your attitude cynical. You become a cynic. You develop a bad attitude Toward others. And all of that self righteousness was brewing and bubbling over in Corinth, and it was a cancer that was spreading rapidly through this church body. Get this what keeps most people away from Jesus is not the sin that they know they have. Think about that. What keeps most people away from Jesus is not the sin that they know they have. What keeps most people away from Jesus is the righteousness that they think they have. Self-righteousness will keep you from Jesus because it makes you think that you don't need him as much as other people need him. And therefore, you won't pray and you won't repent of your own sin. You won't confess sin to others because you really don't have any to confess. And so for some of us, maybe, we need to be confronted with and cleansed from our supposed righteousness. Righteousness will make you stiff, and self-righteousness will make you stiff and, and rigid. As Steve Brown said, it's easier to hug a dirty kid than a stiff kid. Stiffness is the worst sin, and we thought that dirt was the problem. It's easier to hug a dirty kid than a stiff kid. Stiffness, self-righteousness is the worst sin. And we thought dirt was the problem. 
Jesus wants you and me to come to him as we are. What he doesn't want is a stiff, self-righteous person who thinks, I don't need you. That's what the Pharisees were like in the gospel, and that's exactly what the super apostles were like in 2 Corinthians. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, For I came not to call the righteous, the self-righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come for stiff people. He came for dirty people, for sinners, people who know and feel their sin and feel the weight of guilt and shame. And so Jesus finds it easier to hug a dirty kid than a stiff one. Because dirt's not the problem. Stiffness is, self-righteousness is, pride is. What Jesus doesn't want is a stiff, self-righteous person who won't humble themselves and acknowledge they need a savior. And the super apostles were just like that. Stiff, rigid Their self-righteousness and prideful ways were the worst sin. So they thought they had their act together. And therefore, they had no need of the free grace of God that Paul preached. Let's not be like that grace. okay? Let's not be stiff and rigid. Have you ever tried to hug a stiff kid that didn't want to be hugged? Have you ever tried to hug a kid that didn't want to be hugged and you went to hug them? They're like, right? You ever tried to do that? We don't want to be like that with Jesus. He's like, let me hug you. Let me embrace you. Let me surround you with my love. And we're just like, Ur. we don't want to be like that. We just come dirty and muddy. And we're surprised because like we've been in the mud and we come in. And instead of hearing, get out of my house. I just mopped the floors. And Jesus is like, come here. And he just hugs us. We come dirty, muddy, and we let his surrounding love envelop us. And we let his love squeeze us tight. That's what grace is. Grace is a hug to be experienced. Grace is a hug to be enjoyed. It's not merely just some doctrine or theological concept to be dissected. People do this with grace all the time. People can actually get critical and analytical and cynical even as they try to define grace. You'll see people say, the grace is this. They're going to define it with every little nuance. Listen, grace is not this concept that we must examine and try to pick apart and figure it out. Grace instead is a hug from Jesus to be enjoyed and to be experienced. So let's stay humble as a church. We don't need any critical spirits or cynicism here. We're all sinners. We're all damaged and broken by Adam's sin. We all need a Savior. No one is better than anyone here. And only the surrounding, hugging, embracing, squeeze-you-tight love of God for a pretty awful sinner like you can keep your heart from becoming critical and cynical. You can't do it on your own. But when you let God love on you, when you let him squeeze you tight, then the Spirit will empower you to live for Jesus and the Spirit will then empower you to go love on other sinners just like you. And so the gospel of God's love 
for you in Christ is the only thing that will keep you from becoming cynical and critical of others, which is exactly what the super apostles were doing with Paul. But their cynicism and their critical spirit was spilling over to the Corinthians. And that can happen in a church. Listen, be careful of listening to bitter, critical, cynical people because they can poison you and what they will do is they will turn you into them. You'll wake up one day and you'll be like, all of a sudden, you're cynical and, and bitter and, and hardened and stiff and rigid in your self-righteousness. Just like the super apostles. Their self-righteousness led them to be critical and cynical of Paul and it spread through the Corinthian church. That's what self-righteousness will do. And then in their pride, they determined that Paul was crazy. They said, Paul's crazy. But Paul's not crazy. And if he is crazy, he says in verse 13, he's crazy for Jesus. In fact, it's actually Jesus' crazy love for Paul that motivates him in ministry. It's not his ego. And so Paul gives the motivation for why he does ministry in verse 14. Look there at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. It's the gospel, the good news, the love of Christ crucified for sinners that motivates Paul in ministry. He knows that he does not deserve anything but eternity in hell. Paul knows he doesn't deserve any of God's mercy, any of God's grace, any of God's kindness. And so he says, it's the love of Jesus that controls me and my friends as we do ministry. The word that Paul uses here, which gets translated as controls, is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 1.23 when he says, when he says, I'm torn between dying and going to be with Jesus because I love him and staying here and ministering to you because I love you. So I love Jesus and want to be with him, but I love you and want to minister to you. And I'm kind of torn between those two ideas. And so he says, I am hard pressed between the two. So this word means to be, to be held together, to be encompassed, to be absorbed. Think of it as being squeezed tight. This word is used in Luke chapter 8 when the crowds are pressing in around Jesus. They're all pushing and touching him. And he says what? Who touched me? And Peter's like, bro, like we're in a crowd. Who do you think touched you? He said the crowd is squeezing in on you. What do you mean, who touched you? That's the word here, kind of squeezing in and pressing in. And so for Paul, the love of Christ has him kind of pressed in, pushed in like a crowd that's just squeezing in on him. He's hemmed in. In other words, he's surrounded by God's love like a crowd. He's being squeezed tight by God's love. God has, if you will, hugged him tight gospel has circled around Paul and now it forms and shapes his life and ministry. He is loved and accepted and hugged by God and that then empowers him and becomes his motivation for doing ministry. Look at verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know what? We ought to be startled by that phrase, 
for the love of Christ controls us. He knows everything about us, everything, and he still loves us. Take some time this week and just meditate on that phrase. The love of Christ controls us. The love of, of Christ has kind of hemmed us in, is squeezing us tight. Listen, Jesus enjoys hugging dirty kids who come to him to be loved and forgiven. So think about that this week, that Jesus accepts you as you are and loves on you. By the way, have you noticed just how much God repeatedly tells us in the Bible that he loves us? This is another example. Why? Why does God keep repeating himself? God keeps repeating himself because we struggle to believe it, don't we? And God keeps repeating it because God knows that when we embrace his love, it is then that we will go and love others with that same love. He tells us he loves us so that we live for him and go love others. So when you hear God repeat himself over and over again in the Bible about how much he loves you, then let God love on you and you'll live for him. Because here's the principle, you can't love until you've been loved. And it's only to the, to the degree that you have been loved that you will love others. So allow Jesus to love you deeply wherever you are today, unconditionally and with no strings attached. And let him squeeze you tight and let him hug you. And then you'll be able to give his love to others. That's what Paul means when he says that Christ's love controls him and his friends as they do ministry. In other words, the cross, Paul says, controls my ministry. And that's why Paul has concluded that when Jesus died, so did all believers. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 14, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul is saying that we died when Jesus died. He's saying that our judgment day happened at Calvary over 2,000 years ago. Paul is saying that Jesus died for all his elect, his chosen people. And when he died, we died with him. Christ died for all his elect, and all his elect died with him when he died. That was our judgment day. That's verse 14. One died for all, and all who trust in him died when he died. And so the all that Christ died for are the all who died with him and are now in union with him. And now that we are in union with Christ, with his love controlling us, his love surrounding us like a crowd, um, squeezing in everywhere we turn, it's just God's love. It's hemming us in. And because of that, we now no longer live for ourselves, but for Jesus. And when Paul says in verse 15 that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, when Paul says that, listen, he is not implying that Jesus is needy, as if Jesus desperately needs us. Like, I really need you guys to live for me today, okay? Can you please do it? We just live for me? Just live for me, okay? He's not saying that at all. Jesus does not need us at all. God doesn't need anything from us. He is 
He doesn't even need our worship, does he? Because he is self-sufficient. The theological term for this is aseity. What is aseity? It comes from the, the Latin words se, which means from himself. It means that God is independent of his creation. We talk about God's aseity. We mean that he is independent from his creation. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. It means that God does not need us at all. As Matthew Barrett says in his excellent book, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. This is a great book, but let me tell you, these are deep waters. I encourage you to get this book, but man, take your time reading it because it'll give you a migraine. Deep, deep thoughts, but you want to know your God, don't you? Here's what he says. Please brace yourself because I have something shocking to say. God does not need you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me, and he doesn't need anyone or anything in this world. In fact, he doesn't need the world at all, period. God is not a needy God. It's not as if he was bored, twiddling his thumbs, desperately lonely prior to creating the world. God is not dependent on the world for his existence, nor is he dependent on the world for his happiness and self-fulfillment. Instead, he possesses life in and of himself. More precisely, he is the fullness of life in and of himself. So when Paul says in verse 15, we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who lived and died, Paul is not implying that Jesus is needy, as if he really needs us to live for him because he's dependent on that. He's not. He doesn't need us. He doesn't even need our good works. But you know who does? Our neighbors do. Jesus doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. Our neighbors are the needy ones. And when we live to meet their needs and we live to love and serve them, then we are living for the one who lived and died for us, as verse 15 says. And that's why our mission here at Grace is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's why we exist. And so you can put our mission statement in parentheses in verse 15 so that it reads like this. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but exist to ignite a passion in every person, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything, for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'm not saying that that parenthetical statement is scripture, but I'm saying you can squeeze it in there to get the point that Paul's making here. Jesus died and was raised, Paul says, so that we ignite a passion in others to glorify and enjoy him. He died and was raised that we might live for him and not for us. Jesus died and raised so that I would live for him in the self-checkout line. Where I really need to live for him because I'm so self-absorbed. It's not just the self-checkout line. It's everywhere I go, okay? When I go and they're out of the little sanitized wipe things to wipe the thing, I'm frustrated because, you know, before COVID, I was the only guy that used them, okay? Maybe you did too. I'm a germaphobe. 
Nobody, everybody just cruised past those things before COVID. Now that COVID hit, I'm out of wipes. Listen, I need the wipes. You don't need the wipes. I come in, right into the grocery store, I'm already living for my kingdom. I'm like, they're out of wipes. I can't believe that. Didn't they know I was coming in today? And I go to the store, and people are taking their time. They're going slow, and I'm like, get out of the way. All that happens, just me, 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 all the way through the grocery store to the self-checkout line. And that's when the Holy Spirit tapped me the other day and said, you need to check yourself out in the self-checkout line. We were made to glorify God, and we do that most when we enjoy Him above all things, when He satisfies us more than anything in this world, when He satisfies us more than getting our way in the grocery store. That's what we're about here at this church. We want every person that walks through these doors to glorify and enjoy God. We want to ignite this passion in every person everywhere they go and in everything that they do, enjoying his love, enjoying his embrace, enjoying his hugs, enjoying his surrounding, squeezing kind of love so that it changes the way we think, so that we live for him, so that we love others. And so the reason that we gather for a church here every week at Grace is so that we get recalibrated by this truth. We gather to ignite and reignite this passion in ourselves and in other people. Every person in this church, every person in this city, every person in every people group around the world, we want them to glorify and enjoy God. We want to see people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue come to glorify and enjoy Jesus, to enjoy his embrace. Listen, we do not invite the nations to an angry father. We do not invite the nations to a disgruntled judge. We invite them to a loving father. We call them to repentance, yes, but we're inviting them to come enjoy God's love, to enjoy his hugs. We're not, come to Jesus and God will be angry with you. Don't you want to come? Come to Jesus. You can be miserable the rest of your life thinking, oh, does he love me? He loves me. He loves me not. We don't invite them to that. We say that, yes, God is angry at your sin. You need to repent. But guess what? When you repent, you come to a father who hugs you and squeezes you tight. That's what we want to send to the nations. And the reason I say that we gather here each week to get recalibrated is because we need recalibrating every week. How easy is it for us to get sucked into the vortex of our own little kingdoms and our own little worlds? How easy is it to lose sight of the fact that we're here to tell other people about Jesus? How easy is it to lose sight that the passion of the triune God's heart is to see people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue Come to treasure and enjoy Jesus. It's easy to lose sight of that, isn't it? It's easy to get lost in our own world and forget why we are here, which is to glorify and enjoy God and to live for him who died and was raised. That's why we exist as a church. Through all of our ministries, through all of our preaching, all of the meetings that we have, everything that we do here, we want to ignite this passion in people to glorify and enjoy God. But we don't just limit it to ministries within this wall, within these walls. We want to 
glorify and enjoy God everywhere that we go and in everything that we do. Since we come here to get recalibrated every week, that means that the most important day of the week for Christians is the Sabbath. It's Sunday, the Lord's Day. It's as we gather together as a gospel community that we are prepared and encouraged for that final day. It's as we gather for corporate worship where we sing together, pray together, give, serve, celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's where we hear the word of God preached so that we can be encouraged and strengthened to endure until the end. And listen, the way things are going in our country, we're going to need endurance to make it to the end, are we not? That's why Sunday is going to be the most important day for Christians in the coming years. We come here each week to get a hug from God, to receive the love of Christ so that we can share that love with the dying world. And so corporate worship on Sunday needs to be a priority for you and me. Let me say this gently, okay? Especially if you're watching on live stream. If you are comfortable now coming back to church, and you're like, you know what? I'm comfortable now. But you're just too cozy sitting on the couch in your pajamas drinking coffee and doing church. You need to come back. You need this. I know coming from the pastor who has to be here every Sunday, you may be thinking that's self-serving, but it's not. I promise you, I believe this. I want for this for you, any of you at home who are watching, who would be comfortable coming back, but you're just not because it's just easier to sit on the couch. I mean, I get that. I might do it if I was in your shoes. I don't know. But come back. We need you. You need to sing with us. You need to pray with your church family. You need to give and serve and hear the word of God with your family in the same room. Again, if you are comfortable coming back, come back. But no guilt, no shame. There's, there's no guilt. There's no shame driving. There's just hugs driving this, okay? There's just hugs driving this encouragement and exhortation to come back to church. Come back and... Let us hug you. Come back and let God hug you. But come back because you need gospel community so that you can live for the one who died and was raised. And come back to church and join one of our classes that are starting up again on March 28th. Come experience gospel community. You need people in your life encouraging you, rebuking you, challenging you hugging you so that you won't live for yourself, but instead will live for the one who died and was raised. And so in contrast to these self-absorbed super apostles, Paul tells us again that life and ministry is to be lived for Jesus, not our ego, not our reputation, not even our church's reputation. But please understand this grace. You cannot live for Jesus unless you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you absorb and marinate in the gospel. You cannot pull the Christian life off in your own swagger or your own giftings or your own talents. 
You have to soak in the love of Christ that surrounds you and has you hemmed in. You have to be hugged by God first. You have to be hugged by God to live the Christian life. You have to be hugged by God to live for the one who died and was raised. And the fact that he died for you and was raised is proof that he hugs you and loves you. So think on his love for you. You cannot dwell on God's love for you enough. It's one of the reasons why he repeats it over and over again in the the Bible. So be enraptured by his love and let it overwhelm you. Hoping in God's transforming love is what causes us to live for him. It empowers us to live for him. And that's why we preach the gospel here every week. Because we need power to share the love of Christ and to live for him and to then go love others. We live for the one who died for us by dying to self and living to serve others. So notice the pattern pattern there. Death brings life. Jesus' death brings life to us. And when we die to ourselves and we die to our wants and we die to our wishes, we then bring life to others. And that's the principle there. Death brings life. We saw this back in chapter 4. Paul said in verses 10 and 12, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So death brings life. And if we want to experience true life, then we have to get comfortable dying to ourselves in the grocery store. It's weird how it works, but it's true. When we die to self and quit trying to get our way and we serve others, then we experience life. We actually experience true gospel-centered joy by loving and serving other people. But when we fight to get our way, what really happens? just brings death to all of our relationships. Death to us, doesn't it? We think that if we get our way, we'll be happy. But really, what happens is that we experience a kind of death that never satisfies. We were not made to find joy and satisfaction centered around ourselves, even though we always want to get our way in every situation, right? It just can't bring the satisfaction that we long for. That satisfaction and joy only comes when we live for the one who for our sake died and was raised and we live for him by living for others. Remember, God doesn't need your good works. He's sufficient. God's a seity. But your neighbor needs your good works. And by loving and serving our neighbor, we end up living for the one who died And was raised for us. We live by dying. That's discipleship 101. We take up our cross because Jesus took up his cross. And so to take up your cross and follow Jesus is to die. It's to die to self. To die to always getting your way even in the grocery store. So let me ask you this morning. Where do you need to give up your rights? Where do you need to die to selfishness? Jesus died and was raised, Paul said, so that we would die to ourselves, not live for us. Make that connection here. He died and was raised so that we would live for him by dying to self. 
So Jesus came back from the dead so that you would die to yourself in the middle of the grocery store. Think about that. That's an Easter sermon begging to be preached. Jesus died and was raised, came back from the dead so that you would die to self in the middle of the grocery store. And so that I would. And so according to verse 15, one reason that Jesus came back from the dead was so that we would die to ourself, give up our rights and love our neighbor. Listen, if you really want to live, you really got to die. If you really want to live, you really got to die. You have to get comfortable giving up your rights. Get comfortable becoming a servant instead of saying, me, me, mine, mine. And becoming a servant. And that's what Jesus showed us. The way up is down. And that's a crazy idea. The world does not understand this. In fact, our culture today cannot grasp this idea of you give up your rights. You give up your thoughts about something. Our culture today says you should be who you think you are. You should get your way all the time. You should not have to give up your ideas about this world. You should not have to give up your identity or who you think you are, how you were born, how you should be, what you should be called, what pronoun you should use. You should not have to give up your thoughts about life. Just be who you want to be. That's what our culture says. They're stuffing it, cramming it down our throats. But Jesus shows us that the call of discipleship is giving up our rights, dying to self, following our Savior along this path, and then, yes, the world will think we're crazy for this kind of thinking. People thought the Apostle Paul was crazy for thinking this way. But dying is how we really live. Not getting our way is the way. So let God love on you, and you'll live for him. Let him love on you. Let him squeeze you and hug you tight, and then go live for him in your relationships, in your vocation, in your sufferings, and in your rejoicings, in your weaknesses, and in your encouragements, in the face of known disappointments, And with an eye toward an unknown future. The gospel of God's surrounding love is what motivates us to live for him. Not guilt. Listen, guilt will work in the short term. But it doesn't produce lasting change. Only the gospel can do that. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus died so that we might live for the one who died and was raised. That's Paul motivating the Corinthians with the gospel to live for Jesus. May the good news of God's love encompass and surround you so that you live for him even when you're in the grocery store. It's all about grace, not guilt. Grace motivates us. And remember, grace is a hug from God to be experienced and to be enjoyed and then shared with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that we are selfish and sometimes it's most seen in the grocery store, Lord, or when we're driving or at home with our family, Lord. And so we acknowledge that um, we've made life about us and we ask you to forgive us. We repent, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Even though you know everything about us, you keep loving us, hugging us, squeezing us tight. Your love surrounds us. We're 
And we thank you for that, Lord. Change us, transform us. Lord, we want to share your love with others. Help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.